Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Robert Smith. And I'm Jacob Goldstein. Today is Tuesday, September 11th. Today on the show, we have a collection of short Planet Money stories. We will take you on a wild taxi ride through the streets of Manhattan. We'll visit an apartment in Brooklyn where one man makes suits that are extraordinarily expensive. We will go to Germany where a small businessman has what seems like a weird problem. He cannot find enough employees. How do we top that? Final story, we go to the moon. Yes, it's four. Count them. One, two, three, four <laughs> Planet Money stories in one. We begin today on the streets of New York, and this being New York, of course, we're not going to walk or anything. You know, we take a taxi cab. This is a story about taxi cabs in the city. And you may remember a few months back on Planet Money, we told you that the number of taxi cabs in New York City are capped. There are a limited number of cabs out there. But the city of New York looks around and says, we could make a lot more money if we added more taxi cabs and sold more taxi licenses, which can go for as much as a million dollars. So the city had this plan, and the plan was we are going to add more of those famous yellow cabs to the streets of the city. But there is a problem. And Robert, to talk about this problem, you went out on the street and found somebody trying to hail a cab. I'm on the streets of Midtown Manhattan, and for anyone who wants a taxi cab, this is the nightmare scenario. It's raining. Yeah, it's freezing, and I'm drenching wet. And it's the middle of rush hour. You are never going to get a taxi cab. No. I've had three say no. What's your name? Taylor Copeland York. Well, Taylor, there is an actual plan to put 2,000 more taxi cabs oh, nice. on the streets of the city. <laughs> I say yes because I really want a taxi cab right now. And I think it would be a lot easier if people didn't have to fight over them all the time. That is totally understandable. But I, but I have to tell you that right now in New York City there is a debate about whether more taxi cabs will actually make things better in the city. And, you know, a few days ago, I was looking at this situation from a completely different point of view. I was high above the streets of New York. Well, maybe not that high. It's an office in a skyscraper, and it belongs to a sort of traffic guru. I'm Charles Komanoff. He's a transportation consultant. He uses computer models to analyze traffic patterns. The same patterns he sees when he rides his bike to work. Every day for almost 40 years. And the same patterns you can see when we both lean out his window. Kamenev says just look down. The number of taxi cabs in New York City is capped at around 13,000. And yet, they dominate the streets. Uh, you know, I, I think a, a good, you know, 40% of the vehicles in motion, or trying to be in motion, that we're seeing out the window are yellow cabs. Now imagine what happens when they multiply. Okay, we don't have to just imagine it. Komanov turns on his computer, and he opens a program filled with rows of numbers. Welcome to the Balanced Transportation Analyzer. The BTA. The BTA. In here is every lane of every road in the heart of Manhattan. There are the cars, the buses, the trucks. And this computer model tells us something unexpected. More taxis can actually make a city less efficient. Up here in his office, Komanov starts to click on parts of his model to explain the traffic problem. And I'm going to head back out into the streets of Manhattan to show you what he's talking about. I'm now walking up to the entrance to the Lincoln Tunnel. And you can see the problem with Manhattan right here. Because every day, 800,000. 800,000 cars come into Manhattan over just a few bridges and tunnels like this one. And that just means that in the morning and the afternoon, the traffic is terrible. Here, I'm literally walking faster than this guy is driving. Frank Gingerelli. 
It took me one hour from 57th Street to here. But here's the thing that Komanov says about all those cars. You see, they slow down traffic in the morning and in the evening. But they're not tooling around the heart of Midtown. They have a destination to, to get to. They find a way and a place to park their car, and they're done. So with cars, we have a lot of cars, but on the streets for a short period of time, relatively. Yes, yes exactly. If the city adds 2,000 more taxis, that seems like a drop in the bucket, right? Except for one thing. Cabs don't park. Cabs are on the street 24 hours a day. Every additional yellow cab is tantamount in its impact on traffic to having 40 additional private cars drive in from the boroughs or the suburbs to the heart of the city. A cab is always taking up vital road space. And this is where Komanov can really fire up the old computer model and show us what happens when you have more cabs. So should we give it a go? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Once he puts in all the new numbers, more cabs, where they're driving, their routes, etc., he has good news and he has bad news. The good news first. 2,000 extra cabs will mean that people like Taylor, stuck in the rain, trying to hail a cab, will find that cab one minute faster. You will save 60 seconds waiting on the curb. But there is also the bad news. Travel speeds within the Manhattan CBD, the heart of the city, will go down by an average of 12%. So there'll be more cabs. You can hail a cab easier, you assume, but all the cabs are going to be moving 12% slower. Uh, And not just the cabs moving 12% slower, all the buses, all the trucks, and all the private cars. Based on the average cab ride, that minute you saved at the curb will disappear. You'll be sitting in traffic longer. And Komanoff, with his computer program, can put a price tag on that. All that lost time, the deliveries delayed, the work you could be doing at the office. If everyone is moving 12% slower, it could cost, he calculates, $500 million a year in lost time. And this is the lesson that moves beyond taxis in New York. Nothing is free when it comes to city traffic. Even the tiniest changes ripple out. You just have to calculate them. Taxi! Hey, can you take me over to Times Square? We're going to have to wait and see if Komanoff is right, because the plan to add more licensed taxi cabs in New York City, it's being challenged in court, but not by people who care about congestion, by the guys who own the taxi cabs who don't want more competition. My driver here is Usman Sadiqi, and he says the calculation is easy. Add more cabs, more traffic, less money. Which actually sums up the computer predictions rather nicely. I should say, Jacob, that story aired on the radio uh, about a month ago. And in the meantime, there was a uh, court decision where the judge ruled that, in fact, this plan to add more taxi cabs, unconstitutional. This is just the first level. The city immediately appealed. It now goes to the next level. And it's still stuck in court. Unconstitutional. Because they figured out that the city did this by not going through the city council, but by going through the state legislature in New York. The judge said it was a workaround, and you have to find a different way to do it. So it's being appealed, stuck in the court system. So for now, not more cabs, not more traffic. I still expect to see Taylor out front of our office <laughs> in the rain. She's still trying to get a She's cab. She's still trying to get a she cab. She should take the B train. Next up, we have a story from Adam Davidson, and this is a fantastic story that we loved. He did a profile both for the New York Times Magazine and for NPR about a man who makes this very, very expensive luxury product. But it turns out that just because you make something that's expensive doesn't mean that you make a lot of money. 
When I first heard about Peter Frew and his remarkable skill, I thought, that guy must be making a fortune. He invited me to his place to show me what he can do. Look, you can see the tiny stitches. Yeah. They're all done by hand. If you really want a perfect suit, then bespoke is the only way you can get that. Peter Fru is one of a very tiny number of people left in the United States who can, entirely on his own, using almost no machinery, make a classic bespoke men's suit. He can measure you, draw a pattern, cut the fabric, and then hand-stitch a suit designed to fit your body perfectly. We don't just do it by hand in order to say that it's handmade. Suits that are made by hand are exceptionally comfortable. Fru spent more than a decade as an apprentice to a remarkable tailor in his native Jamaica. He now sells his suits for about $4,000. Since New York is filled with very rich people who see their suits as an essential uniform, Fru has all the orders he can handle, which, it turns out, is not that many orders. This one suit, how, much, how many hours will it take you? Upwards, uh, say, 70, 75 hours, yeah. So that's, that's like roughly. two suits a month. Yeah, for one, that's what one tailor could do, you know, by himself. It's $4,000 to the end customer. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing at the most, you're keeping half of that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, $4,000. It's not a lot. <laughs> not a lot of money. <laughs> no. It's not a lot, really. After expenses, fine English wool costs a lot. Fru takes home less than $50,000 a year. That's not enough to own a fancy suit made by a bespoke tailor, even when you yourself are a bespoke tailor. Do you have suits you've made for yourself, Peter? Uh, actually, no. No? Really? <laughs> Why not? It's the time. Yeah. It's the, 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 I'm always have to be working on something else for somebody else. Yeah. You know? and, and because I do know the difference, I cannot just get a suit somewhere else. I love luxury. You don't own any suits? <laughs> no. You have no suits? No. I have trousers and shirts, but no suits. Most of us, though, are happy to buy mass-produced suits. They might not be perfect, but they're decent, and they keep getting better. The big suit-making factories in China, Bangladesh, and Pakistan use advanced sewing machines and chemical applications that are nowhere near as good as bespoke, but they're a lot better than they used to be. Every year, industrial suit-making technology improves. It's better quality for lower cost. While the traditional methods just don't change and cost more and more. But Fru believes that eventually more people will reject those automatically created suits. Everything goes well. What is your life like in 10 years, 20 years? Um, Having a a nice store up on somewhere in the Upper East Side in Manhattan and uh, a factory with about, you know, 50 tailors or, or more. Each doing the Do, full suit. Doing a full suit. But that's the problem. There aren't 50 bespoke tailors in the U.S., and there probably won't ever be. Why would anyone spend 15 years learning a skill that pays so little? But Fru says he's fine, even if his big dreams don't come true. He just loves what he does. He loves hand-making perfect suits. And, you know, Jacob, just today, uh, Tuesday, September 11th, I, I saw Adam Davidson out on the streets of New York. And I said, where are you going? And he's like, I am going to get a new suit. 
And I'm like, oh, did you get a hookup from this guy, you know, from the this custom bespoke suit? And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. I couldn't pay that much. But he's going to a store because now, now he feels like he truly appreciates what goes into a suit. So maybe he'll start coming to work in some beautiful suit. He said he's going like to dress up more. He said he's going to dress up more. And I think it's going to show on the radio. All right. Next story, Germany. Robert, you and Zoe, you actually went to Europe recently. This is one of the stories you guys did there. And it poses one of the questions that is really interesting to me and that I haven't understood, which is this. You have parts of Europe, say parts of Spain, where unemployment is around 30%, okay? And then you have Germany, where the economy, it's not perfect, but it's much better. Unemployment is much lower. And one of the big ideas of the European Union was to make it easier for people to move from country to country to work. But it really hasn't happened as much as you might think. So, Robert, you and Zoe, you went to Germany and tried to figure out why not? Why aren't more Spaniards going to Germany to work? I'm Robert Smith in Stuttgart, Germany, and we're visiting an engineering firm, B&W, it's called. And they design these beautiful little things made out of metal. Look, it's like a little, it's like a little gearbox. I don't really know what they do. Something to do with sports cars, anti-lock braking sensors, clutch cases. <laughs> we're playing with all the products when we meet the CEO, Gerhard Wiegelmann. He'd like to make more of this stuff, but his company's severely short-staffed. In fact, Viegelman says when a customer comes to them now, this summer, for a new design, he has to break the news to them. Now we cannot do this. We would like and we are able, but we can start in December. He has to turn down work because he has unfilled positions for 15 designers. That's a quarter of his entire staff. And think about how wild this is. Unemployment all over Europe. And Viegelman can't get a lot of foreigners to even take a look at his jobs. Why? There's one Spaniard working here, so we asked him. Ignacio Valero is from Zaragoza. He says the number one reason more of his countrymen aren't coming to Germany is, well, partially America's fault. Young people in Spain learn English as a second language instead of German. In German, it's very difficult. I mean, it's not, a, it's not an easy language. But there's something else. Valero says he's had a little trouble adapting to Germany's peculiar social style. People are not so open here in Germany and getting along with, with people. It's not so easy. That's what I think. It wasn't supposed to be this way. The idea of the European Union was to create one big labor market. They figured if they got rid of the legal barrier stopping a French person from working in a German factory, then that would be enough. If there were jobs in Germany for French workers, the French would move there. But as we discovered, that's not the case. I'm Zoe Chase in a little village just outside the city of Strasbourg, France. And the life is pretty sweet. It's beautiful here. You can smell the lavender. The birds are chirping. And every morning, the French people who live here pile into cars, buses, and trains. And they cross the German border to go to work in Karlsruhe, Germany. But at the end of their work day, they get back into their cars and they drive back across the border into France. We met Raymond Keith. He works for Siemens just over the border. I like working in Germany because everything is well organized. But for my private life, I don't like if everything is organized. It's much better for me to live in France. What's so great about France again? Well, Yannick Pebre, he lives in France, works in Germany. He gave us his most important reason. I eat French bread. I can't eat German bread. It's impossible. I know it sounds like bad stereotypes, like the Frenchmen who love their bread and the uber-organized Germans. 
But the cultural issues are very powerful here. Even if legally a Frenchman working in Germany is not an outsider, culturally he feels like one. Back here in Germany, the CEO of the engineering firm, Gerhard Wiegelmann, says it's hard for Americans to understand how crippling this is to the European economy. The United States people grow up with the idea, if things in the North are better, I will move to the North. And uh, I think European people don't want to move. And so some companies are trying to go beyond what the European Union has done, changing the laws. They're trying to change the culture. Some of them hire Andreas Ruhm. He's a consultant that coaches German CEOs in how to attract foreign workers. He shows them how to be a little less cold, a little less aloof, a little more Spanish. You have to send warm signals, for instance, to meet candidates in their country. Do you tell these CEOs when they go to Spain or Italy or Greece, do you tell them to take off the suit, to hug? Or you can't convince them to hug? I, I try it. I should say Vigelman, the CEO, did not try to hug me. But I asked him to give his best sales pitch for foreign workers to come to Germany. If you are a young, high-motivated engineer, you will see that we make a lot of interesting projects. Sure, but what about the German weather? What about the German food? You can stay alive here. <laughs> Way to sell it. That, that's that's awesome. quite a pitch. <laughs> I have to say, Robert, I am not dying to go work for BNW. And I, I do get why somebody who, you know has a lovely life in Spain but can't find a job, might not be rushing off to Germany. You know, we didn't get a chance to put into the story, but there, there is one thing that this guy is doing to help attract workers, especially from Italy. And you'll know why I say Italy when I tell you what he did. His firm bought a race car. And so he actually, on the weekends, you can be part of the pit crew and, like, help race this car. And, you know, he's a, he does car parts, and so he figures right, So this... if you're like a car nerd, right? Like, you're an engineer, you love yeah. cars, and, and, and you, you know your friends aren't here, so you have something to do on the weekend. Yeah, and, and the young Spaniard we talked to, he thought, that was, he thought that was pretty cool, pretty exciting. Okay, so just to recap, New York City taxis, suits in Brooklyn. Check. Workers in Germany. Yep. Now, finally, the moon. The space race was on, Apollo 11 was set to launch in 1969, and Neil Armstrong had a problem. A space historian and collector told me about this, Robert Perlman with CollectSpace.com. He says, just think about it. You're an astronaut. You're about to embark on a mission that's more dangerous than anything any human has ever done before, because you're literally entering the final frontier of space. And you have a family that you're leaving behind on Earth, and there's a real chance that you will not be returning. Exactly the kind of situation a responsible person plans for, financially speaking. You know, takes out a life insurance policy or something. And the cost for Neil Armstrong would have, uh, at the minimum, uh, would have been around $50,000. A year in the 1960s. Risky job means high premiums. Now, Neil Armstrong had something unusual going for him. He was famous for exactly those risks he was about to take. The whole Apollo 11 crew was Buzz Aldrin, Michael Collins. People really wanted their autographs. These astronauts had been signing autographs since the day they were announced as astronauts. And they knew that even though eBay didn't exist back then, that there was a market for such things. There was a demand. Especially for what were called covers. These were envelopes that were signed by astronauts, sometimes they'd be postmarked. And so, about a month before Apollo 11 was set to launch, the three men entered quarantine 
And while they were in, in that secluded area together, they sat down and they signed hundreds, if not thousands, of these covers, of these envelopes, all three of them signing each one. They gave them to an astronaut friend, and on the day of the Apollo 11 launch, he got them to the post office, got them postmarked, and then distributed them to the astronauts' three families. So that they had their signatures on something that was postmarked on the day they launched. Life insurance in the form of autographs. If they did not return from the moon, then these covers could be sold by their families to collectors and to the public, and that their families could sell them to not just fund their day-to-day lives, but also fund their kids' college education and other life needs. That is so clever. Yeah, I mean, they are astronauts. The life insurance autographs were not needed. Armstrong and Aldrin walked on the moon, came home safely, and in the years following, they signed probably tens of thousands more autographs for free. But then in the 1990s, Robert Perlman says the insurance autographs did start showing up in space memorabilia auctions. Do you have any? I don't, but I've held them. It's hard to just put into words, but they're to me, they're beautiful. Other people feel the same way. An Apollo 11 insurance autograph right now can cost as much as $30,000. Hannah Jaffe-Walt, NPR News. As always, we want to hear from you. You can email us at planetmoney at npr.org. And, you know, a lot of these stories had web components to them. On the blog, npr.org slash money, you can see the difference between a cheap suit and expensive suit. We'll teach you all the details. You can actually see a picture of one of those uh, insurance covers that the astronauts signed, also on the blog. And our multimedia producer, Lomvo, did a great video about Charles Komanoff and taxis and traffic in New York. It's well worth looking up. Once again, npr.org slash money. I'm Robert Smith. And I'm Jacob Goldstein. Thanks for listening.